0: I want to go ahead and get started this morning? Uh, we're going to have some traffic probably coming in a little early, so we want to make sure we finish up uh, finish up on time if we can. If you got your Bibles uh, with you, turn with me to Genesis chapter three, and we're going to be looking in verses fourteen through sixteen. Genesis chapter three, verses fourteen through uh, sixteen. Uh, the title of our lesson this morning is The Judgment. We won't get through all of this today. Uh, we'll have to pick up again uh, next week, uh, but we will start today. Uh, I read an article one time about a sign in front of a, a Catholic convent. And the sign said this, No trespassers, violators will be shot. And then it was signed, Thank you, the Sisters of Mercy. <laughs> now, that sign really reflects a problem that all Christians wrestle with, and that is the tension between God's judgment and God's love, or His grace and His mercy. You see, there's some people out there that put all their emphasis on God's love, and they pride themselves on their tolerance and their acceptance, and and their favorite verse is, let him uh, without sin cast the first stone, right? That would be their favorite verse. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got people who put all their emphasis on God's judgment. These people are very stern. They're unforgiving. Their favorite verse in the whole Bible is, prepare to meet thy God, right? Um, so you got these two ends of this, of this spectrum, but the Bible paints a picture of a God who is both. He is loving and holy. He is gracious and righteous. He is merciful and He is, he is just. Now, it's important, and I, I think, I, I can't stress this enough how important it is that we get this right. You've got to get this tension between these things too right. I've been teaching this uh, class now for 10 years, and over the years I've run across a bunch of quotes that I've used in this, in this class. And one of my favorites, I'll never forget the first time I read it, I thought, wow, that is the most one of the most perceptive things outside the Bible I've ever read. It's a quote by A.W. Tozer uh, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. And I want to read it to you because I I just think this is an incredible quote. He said this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me read that again. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about you. Your worship, he says, it will be as pure or as base as as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God Himself. The most important fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that comprises the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. I love that quote. In other words, the higher your view of God, the more you'll strive to meet that. The lower or baser your view of God, you'll just, you'll, you'll acclimate yourself toward that. And you see that in, in religions. Their view of God dictates what they do, who they are. And the same is exactly true uh, of, of us. You see, our view of God affects every aspect of our life. It, it affects how you work, how you spend your money. It, it affects your marriage. It affects how you how you're a parent. It affects how you're a child. It affects everything about you. Therefore, it's imperative that we know and understand correctly who God is, and it, and it's also imperative that we understand how He deals with our sin. Now, I bring all this up because Genesis chapter three gives us a proper view of God. Now, as we saw last week, Adam and Eve have been confronted by God. They've been uh, kind of forced to admit their guilt. They did it very grudgingly. Uh, obviously, Adam blamed Eve, then he blamed God, and, and, and Eve blamed Satan, and they just blamed... But they both finally admitted that, yes, I I ate. We disobeyed you. Yet God did not just strike them dead as His judgment would have required Him to do. At the same time, he didn't say, you know what, that's all right, don't worry about it, just just, just go on, as his love alone may have allowed. What we saw is he imposed a penalty, or, or will impose a penalty for their sin, but at the same time, his grace gives them a way to be restored to him. In other words, there's both a judgment and a covering for sin, because that's who God is, and we're going to see this uh, at the end of this at the end of this lesson that he does this for us as as well. So let's begin uh in chapter 4 I mean sorry in in chapter 3 verse 14. Let's begin with the judgment of the serpent. So the Lord God said to the serpent, "Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life." Now, as we saw earlier in our study Satan is using this, this serpent, um, to tempt Eve. It's not the serpent. It's not a talking snake or anything like that. It's Satan working through this serpent. He's just using the serpent. The serpent is an irrational animal, right? We don't, we don't throw a dog in jail for being a dog. We don't, they're they're irrational animals. They don't, you know. So why, this kind of raises the question, why, what is the point of punishing an irrational animal? What's the point of that? It wasn't his fault. He was being used. Why would you punish a snake and say, on your belly you will go? Because the snake then becomes a permanent symbol or a permanent illustration of Satan's judgment. Every time you and I see a snake, it should remind us of the, the, the divine judgment on Satan for what he, he did. In the Old Testament, licking dust or eating dust... Was, was an expression that was used for complete and total defeat. For example, in Psalm 72, 9, it says, Let the nomads of the desert bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. It, it is a complete symbol of defeat when something has to lick the dust or, or those words are used. So every snake that we see, every dust-eating snake, is a symbol of the complete defeat and, and humiliation and judgment of Satan. He has been declared a defeated enemy. Now, let's look at verse 15. He goes on to say, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, at this point, in verse 14, he's talking to the snake. On your belly you shall go. The question arises, is he still talking to the animal or now is he talking to Satan. Well, if you, at first, at the very first glance, it looks like he could still be talking about the animal. He says, between your offspring and her offspring. So this could be talking about general offspring. But then when you get to the second part of verse 15, the words change. He says this, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, who is He? Well, it's, he's talking about some male offspring of the woman. And who is you? Well, he's talking now to Satan himself. You see, the day is coming, God says, when you, talking to Satan, not just your offspring, when you will be defeated and removed from the earth. See, theologians down throughout the centuries have seen these words as being spoken not to the animal, but to the satanic power behind the animal. This statement is known as the proto-evangelium. Proto meaning first Evangelian gospel. This is the first gospel. It is a promise that there is a savior coming. And although this savior, this Messiah, will suffer, his heel will be bruised. In the end he will defeat Satan. In other words, he will bruise your your head. You see, God is by nature a savior. He's by nature gracious and loving and forgiving. And we see that right here in the very, with the, dealing with the very first sinful couple. That even as he pronounces a judgment on them and a, and a judgment on Satan, he's already providing a glimmer of the gospel truth that will be coming down throughout the ages. You see, from the very beginning, I've said this over and over again in this class. Don't ever let anybody tell you that somehow Satan sucked into the garden and ruined God's plans. That's, that's not the way it, it, it is at all. The Bible says that, that Jesus Christ was slain from the foundations of the earth. Ephesians, two, uh, Ephesians 1 or 2 tells us you, He chose you before the foundation of the world. I mean, He had a plan in mind before He created all this. So He's always had a redemptive plan. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why the eternal Son of God had to become a man because the prophecy said it was the offspring of a woman who would defeat Satan. Hebrews 2.14, talking about Jesus, says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, partook of flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. It's interesting that in the Bible, this is the only place where it talks about the seed of a woman. Everywhere else in the Bible, descent or genealogy always comes through the man because seed is in the man. The egg is in the woman, but the seed is in the man. But here, it, it's the only place in the Bible it talks about the seed of a, of a woman who will bruise Satan's head. And this, And we know now, of course, this is a prophecy. It's veiled at the time, but it's prophesying of a man who will come, who will be born of a woman, but he's not the seed of a man. And the only man that fits that, of course, is, is Jesus Christ. Now, let's turn to Adam and Eve. It's now time for God to deal with the man and the woman. Now, I want you to notice He will not curse them directly. He cursed Satan. He said, cursed are you among all livestock. You will go on your belly. He does not curse the man and the woman directly. Okay, He never uses that word with them. But He does impose penalties for their disobedience. And these penalties are not only imposed on Adam and Eve, but they're imposed on every person that comes after them. By the way, all sin is exactly like that. We never ever sin in isolation. Even the sin that we commit in secret affects others. This talk that I hear sometime about what goes on behind uh, closed doors between consenting adults is nobody else's business, it doesn't affect anybody else, that is absolute baloney. Sin always creates guilt, even secret sin. And that guilt alienates you from your spouse, it alienates you from your parents, it alienates you from other people, and it alienates you from God. Sin always has effects. And there's some of you know this, not only does it affect the generation now, but it affects the generation to come. It affects your children and your grandchildren because of the things that you have done consequences of sin. God is a forgiving and gracious and loving God, but sin always has consequences, as Adam and Eve will see. Now, this morning, we're going to look at the woman, and we won't even get all the way through it. Um, There's two judgments that come against her. We'll only see the first one, and we'll get to her, the second one, in Adam next week. Let's look at verse 16. Very, very, very interesting uh, scripture, and it And it never ceases to amaze me how we can read Genesis, and it is so relevant for today. This has just amazed me since we started this three months ago. Let's read verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. That's number one. And number two, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, the judgment as it is applied to the woman is in two main areas. Number one, her relationship to her children. Number two, her relationship to her husband. And if you look at this really closely, you can see divine wisdom. See, these are the two categories, I believe, that define the life of a woman. Yes, women work. Yes, women can have careers. That's all fine and great. But women are defined in these two relationships, their relationship with their husband and the relationship with their children and in, in Titus 2:14 Paul's writing to Titus and he says you older women teach the younger women to do these two things love your husbands love your children see those are her two things that define her and it's since it's these two areas that define a woman's life and role in the world it is to these two areas that God speaks judgment See, the punishment is designed so that women have a very personal reminder of the sin that, that, that Eve committed that came out of the garden. So this is a woman's life. She is a sinner. She's surrounded by sinful children and, and a sinful husband. I read one commentator said this. She gives birth to little sinners and she's married to a big one. And that, about, that just about sums it up, right? Um, a, a woman's life. Now listen... We live in America. We live in 2018. And we are very blessed. But I'm going to make some general statements this morning that I want you to, you got to think outside of our culture and our society. Down throughout history, it has been very, very hard to be a woman. Can I get an amen from somebody, right? And in, by the way, in many places and in cultures in, around the world today, it has changed very little since ancient times. The plight of a woman in this world has always been very difficult. In general, throughout human history, women have have pretty much just functioned as the slaves to men. Men have used them for for sexual fulfillment, they've used them for domestic duties, and they've used them to to give birth to and and raise children. Pretty much they've been used for those three things down throughout the, the millennia. Now, I believe and I hope we all do, that women have it probably as good today in America as you could possibly have it. Yet, even here today, the plight of women can still be extremely hard. Just open the newspaper. Read the news and see some of the stuff. And we'll talk about this more uh, next week and some of the things that are going on uh, in our society. Even in America, it can still be very, very difficult uh, to be a woman. Now, this harsh treatment of women was not the original design of God. That was not His design. See, sin came in and corrupted this relationship between a man and a woman, between a woman and her children. And this is what has made, as we'll see, has made her life very difficult. Now, we all understand there's general suffering in the world. Right, Everybody goes through suffering because of sin. We all have to endure sicknesses and illnesses and tragedies and accident and things like that. Everybody. It doesn't matter if you're a man or you're a woman. We all deal with these kind of things. But in a very specific way, women have a category of suffering above men. In a very specific way. And primarily, their suffering is related to two areas. Their relationship to their husband and their relationship to their children. Now, we'll only get to one of those today, and that's the children. We'll look at the husband <laughs> next week. Now, let me tell, let me say this right up front. I'm not saying that women don't find joy in their children. Of course they can, and of course they do. And I'm not saying that women don't find joy in their husbands. I, I, I'm not saying that at all. Of course they can, and of course they do. But the fact of the matter is that women have a unique burden to bear In this world, that men do not have to bear, we'll see that this week and next week. For example, they alone have to endure the dangers of pregnancy. They alone have to primarily care for the children. They alone bond with these little human beings in a way that that men don't bond with them. It's a different. It's a whole different relationship uh, thing they've got going on. They alone have to deal with husbands who don't understand them, right? And you may say, well. You know, my wife don't. You know, women don't understand men. Yeah, but men don't care, right? (laughs) They, they just don't care. Oh, you don't understand me. Whatever. I got to, I got to go fishing or something. They just walk out and don't, and it's it's behind them. But, 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 but women care, right? And, and it, it affects them in in that way. So let's look at the first judgment given uh, against Eve, and by that, all women. Okay, this is the first one. He says, "I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you will bring forth." children. Now, before we get into this, I want to remind you in Genesis chapter 1, God says this, male and female, he created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In other words, go have a lot of babies. So even before sin enters the picture, there is going to be pregnancy. There is going to be childbirth. Okay, so this raises, I, I told y'all when I study this, I always have to ask, I want to, I'm i always asking questions. So the question I've got is, what if things hadn't changed? Would Eve have experienced pain in childbirth before the fall? Everybody with me? In other words, if sin hadn't come in and God hadn't said, I'm going to increase your pain in childbirth, would she have experienced pain? Now, let me say, this is a very, very difficult question to answer. First of all, it's it's hard to imagine for anybody that's ever been in that room, it's very difficult to imagine how in the world she could have had a baby without any pain at all, right? Now that would have been a that would have been a miracle. But the problem is is that if there would have been pain, it would have had to have been good pain because at the end of the sixth day it says God saw what? Everything that he had made and behold it was what? very good. By the way, down when, when in the new heavens and the new earth, it says there will be no more what? Pain. No more sorrow. At the same time, and this is a separate subject and we won't chase this this morning. Do you understand pain is not all bad? Talk to a, talk to a person with leprosy who has lost the sense of pain and find out what happens. They, They, they can, they can step on a nail and they don't feel pain. And then what happens, that becomes infected and they end up losing their whole leg because they they never had any kind of sense of pain. I've got a friend of mine in in, uh, Omaha right now who had a stroke and he feels no, he has no feeling on the right side of his body. So he, when he puts his hand under hot water, he has no way to know if it's too hot. If he steps on a, a nail, he has no way of knowing that. He has to complete... Pain can be a good thing. Everybody with me? I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful design that God has put... I mean, you sit in a chair too long and you, you you start to feel pain and you you shift because if you didn't, you'd get bed sores. Your eyes blink, right? Because uh, it, it, it's the, because of the sensation that your eyes need to blink to, to kind of water themselves. And I mean, pain's a, an unbelievably good thing in a lot of ways, but it's also an unbelievably bad thing. I don't know how to answer that question, to be quite honest with you. I just cannot, cannot answer it. But here's what I want you to see. Whatever the case, the pain in childbirth was multiplied after the fall. Okay? But multiplied in what way? Well, I think the answer is it's multiplied in two ways. First of all, it's multiplied physically. There's no doubt about this. You see, throughout history... Pregnancy has exposed women and brought them to the very brink of death. I mean, this is still true today in many third world countries. We are so blessed to live in a society where we've got the medical care and the things that, that, that technology can do. That's an amazing thing. But that's, that's just in the last few decades that we've been able to do that. I mean, women around the world throughout the centuries, when you got pregnant, there was a pretty good chance you may not make it. So, so it, the pain involved in that has been, has been multiplied. And see, before the fall, that wouldn't have been an issue. You would have never gotten, you gotten pregnant. You'd have never worried about dying. You'd never worried about something happening to the child. That would have even have been part of the equation. It would have been nothing but a joyous occasion. And this is a side note. Now, I can't prove this. I saw this. Uh, on, on one of the commentaries and I thought it was pretty interesting. It's very possible that a woman's fertility increased after the fall. You see, before the fall there's no death, right? And so every birth is just in, would be just increasing the, the population of the earth. Nobody's dying. So if, if a woman could have had a baby every year or two, it would have been very soon at all they would have, the, the earth would have run out of resources. Is everybody with me? Because nobody's dying. So it's very possible but that before the fall that they would their fertility, they maybe they only had a baby every thirty years or forty years or fifty years, who knows? Right? But the fact is after death comes on the scene, a woman's fertility would need to increase to compensate for the people that are that are dying. Does that make sense to everybody? in order to sustain and grow the population. So, I don't know if that's true, but if it is, then multiply your pain could also refer to multiple conceptions. In other words, you'll have a lot more children. And you'll have them a lot closer together. Again, I can't prove that, but that makes some sense. But here's the real key, and this is what I want you to see this morning. Yes, their pain is multiplied physically, but where a woman's pain is really multiplied is emotionally. You see... To be a mother, and I'm not a mother, I'm a father, but to be a mother is literally a call to suffer. Not just at the beginning of that child's life, but throughout that child's life. You remember that the, when when Mary and Joseph bring baby Jesus to the temple and Simon looks at him and prophesies over him, he says to Mary in Luke 2, Behold, this child is appointed for the rise and fall of many in Israel, and a sword will pierce your soul." A sword will pierce your your soul. You see, what really multiplies a mother's pain is the things that can happen after the child is born. Proverbs ten one says this: A wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish son is a grief to his mother. I think that's a really interesting thing. It's like if if he does good, the father's all happy, but if this does bad, it's the mother that really suffers. She because she takes all that. On herself. That, I don't, I don't, again, I'm not a mother. I can't understand that. Some of you maybe can understand that even better than I can, but it's the mother that seems to suffer emotionally more with the, with the things that their children have to experience. Jewish rabbis taught that pregnancy is a mother's most blessed season. And the reason for that is because while she's pregnant, she can know with certainty that that child is safe, that that child is, is warm that that child is, is being taken care of. A certainty that would vanish immediately when it comes into the world. As soon as they get birth, it, th- this child is opened up now to all these additional things. She has to release this child into a world that's got all these hostilities and all of these threats and all of these dangers, physical, emotional, spiritual, moral. And that is a painful thing for, for a mother to have to do. Why? Because... One reason is, by child, by nature, that child is a sinner. That child is going to do wrong things. That child is going to engage in destructive behavior, and the mother knows that. Therefore, her heart can never rest, even as that child begins to grow. We're, if you're here and you're a parent, you'll know this. I've got, a, I've got an older son that's 30, I've got a younger son that's 21, and I still worry about him. You still worry. It never stops you still worry about them. And I'm sure for a mother, that's probably even uh, even worse. Because she worries about not only what may harm that child physically, she worries about not only what may harm them emotionally, but she has to worry about that child's soul as well. You see, this is the great hidden truth of pain and childbearing. That we don't think about. We see that term pain in childbearing and we think physical. But the great hidden truth is the emotional. That See, you got to understand before the fall, before sin, the raising of children would have been joy only. Can you imagine being a mother and, hey, mom, I'm going to run out in the garden. Hey, go at it. There's nothing that's going to bite him. There's nothing. He's not going to fall and break his arm. There's no pain. There's no sorrow. You don't have to worry about anything. Wouldn't that be awesome? But see, after the fall, you can't have the joy without the pain. You just can't. So there's an emotional aspect to raising ch- children and childbirth that didn't exist before the fall. Now, I want to close with this. Is there anything a woman can do to alleviate the pain of the curse? Remember what God says, I'm going... And This is, this is amazing. You're going to like this, ladies. God says, I, I'm going to multiply your pain in childbirth in great pain, you're going to bring forth children. And we've already talked about, he's talking about physically and emotionally. Now, here's the question. What can a woman do to alleviate that pain? Okay? Well, the answer is, don't have, the answer is not, don't have children or get an epidural. Okay? That's not the answer. Nothing wrong with that. Get all the epidurals you want. I don't care. That's a great thing. Um, but there actually is a way and the scripture actually gives us the answer to this very question there is something that every woman can do to alleviate that pain i'm going to go to first timothy chapter 2 verses 12 through 14 if you got your bible and you want to turn there you may want to circle this cuz this is really interesting i'm going to lay a little context here for you paul is writing to timothy and he's saying this is how i want the church to be run and he says this i do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. Yikes, okay? So there, evidently there's something going on in this church and there's a lot of chaos and stuff. And he says, look, it's the men who are supposed to be teachers. It's the men who are supposed to be in positions of leadership. And then he says this, the word for, which is the word because. Because we all want to know, when I wait a minute, Paul, isn't not that isn't this just a cultural thing? That's your culture. Right? That's a, that, you, you had a patriarchal culture. That's not our culture. But when, 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 when Paul gives his reason, this is what he says. Because Adam was formed first and then Eve. So he goes all the way back to the garden, doesn't he? He says, you want a reason for this? Go back to the garden. God created Adam first and then he created Eve as the helper. And then he says this in verse 14, and Adam was not deceived but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So the first part of this passage is referring to a woman's role as a God-given helper to the man. Now, they are, equally, they are equal spiritually. They are equal before God. They are absolutely equal in Christ. But the order of creation matters. It is Adam, the man, and then it is Eve, the woman. That matters, is what Paul is, is saying. That's how God intended it from the very beginning. Then starting in verse 14, he turns to the fall. He says, this is how it was before the fall, and then comes the fall, and Adam is deceived and became a transgressor. In other words, Eve stepped out of her God-given role. And and, and by the way, Adam's got a whole, whole host of blame to, Play in this we'll see that next week but she came out from under the protection and the authority of her husband and she was exposed to satan and she fell she was deceived and she transgressed and because of this we saw the first part of the judgment that she would know her most deepest and profound pain through relationships with her children and as we said that's through the physical pain of birth and the emotional pain of rearing them Now look at the very next verse. Yet, yet, Paul says, yet, she will be saved through childbearing. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing. Now, the same God who has judged her, you're going to have pain in childbearing, now gives a way to mitigate or lessen the effects of that. You will be saved through Childbirth. Now let let me make sure you understand something. This is not talking about the salvation of a soul. Don't go out and teach anybody you can get saved by having babies. That's not the way it works, right? That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about being saved or being delivered from the effects of the curse. Go back and read the context. Before the fall, then Eve is deceived. And because of that, she has these uh, judgments on her. So she can be saved or delivered, not the salvation of her soul, but she can be saved or delivered from the effects of the curse. That's what he's talking about. See, the pain of childbearing is the punishment of sin, yet in that very childbearing she can find deliverance from the pain. Now, how does she do that? We'll read the rest of the verse. If, if they, talking about women, continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control yet she will be saved through childbearing if she continues in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, what in the world is he talking about here? Well, listen, what it's talking about is a woman that lives a godly life. And what happens if, if a woman lives a godly life? What does she normally raise? She will raise godly children. In fact, Paul was writing to Timothy who, as far as we know, his father wasn't even in the picture, but he was raised by a godly mother and a godly grandmother, and he became a godly man. See, he's saying if a woman will live like this in faith and holiness and self-control, if she'll live a godly life, then she'll be saved or delivered from much of the pain that she would otherwise have to endure because she's now raising not rebellious sinners, but she's raising godly children. You see, everybody got that? Now listen, some of you ladies this morning may be sitting here, and I've been talking about pain in childbirth and 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 your children and having to deal with all this pain and raising your children. And some of you have probably been sitting here and saying, You know what, Derek, I don't I don't identify with that at all. My my children haven't been a pain to me. My children haven't been a, a, a source of sorrow to me. My children have been an absolute joy to me. I don't identify with that at all. You know why? Because you're living first Timothy 2:15. See, if you're a godly mother and you've been you've you've raised these godly children and your children are being raised to love the Savior. See, the curse is being mitigated, the curse is being lessened and you're you're actually seeing this happen. And you're being delivered from the majority of its impact. Now, you can't, you know, there, understand what this is saying. There's no absolute guarantee that every godly mother is going to raise a godly child. That's not a guarantee. And think. And, and by the way, on the other hand, just because you're not a godly mother, God can reach down and touch that child and raise him up to be a godly man or, or her or a godly woman, despite what you've done. Hallelujah for that, right? That's a great thing. But see, here's a promise that if a woman will live a godly life, that, that God can do something through that to raise up godly children and mitigate the majority of the impact of the curse. So we need to thank God. As I said this morning when we started with the sign, the, the tension between God's love and God's judgment, it's always there. There are always consequences for sin. God is, is just. And because of that, there are those consequences. But at the same time, God is loving and God is gracious and God is merciful in that He gives us a covering for that sin. He gives us a way to mitigate or lessen the consequences for that uh, sin. Next week, we're going to turn, we're going to continue in verse 16. We're going to look at the second half of that verse. uh, He shall rule over you. We're going to talk about the effects that that's had down through uh, the centuries as well as the effects that we're seeing it have uh, in our our culture uh, today. Let's pray.